Section three of the Diary of a U Boat Commander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall. Section three. Once more it is night, still the guns rumble on the same old dismal tones, and as it is raining now it must be getting bad up at the front. Except for the rain it might have been last night, but much has happened to me in the meanwhile. Today in the forest by Russellied I found I loved Zoe, loved her as I've never yet loved woman, loved her with my soul and all that is me. The day was gloriously fine when we started and an hour's run took us to the forest. We left the car at an inn, and wandered down one of the glades. I carried the basket, and we strolled on and on until we found a suitable place deep in the heart of the forest. I have the sailor's love for woods, for their depths, their shadows, their mysteries, which are so vivid a contrast to the monotony of the sea, with the everlasting circle of the horizon and the half-bowl of the heavens above. In the forest today, Though the leaves had turned to gold and red and brown, the beaches were still well covered, and overhead we were tented with a russet canopy. I say, at last we found a spot, or rather Zoe, who, with girlish pleasure in the adventure, had run ahead, called to me, and as I write I seemed to hear the echoes of, Carl, Carl, which rang through the wood. When I came up to her she proudly pointed to the place she had found. It was ideal. An outcrop of rock formed a miniature Matterhorn in the forest, and beneath its shelter with the old trees as silent witnesses, we sat and joked and laughed, and made twenty attempts to light a fire. After lunch a little incident happened which had an enormous effect on me. Zoe asked me whether I would mind if she smoked. How many women in these days would think of doing that? And yet, had she but known it, I am still sufficiently old-fashioned to appreciate the implied respect for any possible prejudices which was contained in her request. After lunch I asked her a question to which I dreaded the answer. I asked her whether, now that the old colonel had gone to the Somme, whether that meant she would be leaving Bruges. She laughed and teasingly said, "'Quien sabe, senor?' But, seeing my real anxiety on this point, she assured me that she was not leaving for the present. The colonel, she said, had a strange belief that once a man had served on the Flanders front, and especially on the Ypres salient, he always came back to die there. It appears that the colonel has done fourteen months' service on the salient alone, and is firmly convinced he will end his career on that great burial ground. As we were talking about the colonel, I longed to ask her how she had met him and perhaps find out why she lives with him, for I cannot believe she loves him, but I did not dare. Strangely enough, I found a curious shyness had taken hold of me with regard to Zoe. I said to myself, Fool, you are alone with her, you long to kiss her, you have kissed her, first at the dinner-party, secondly when you said good-bye at her flat, and yet to-day it was different. Then I was kissing a pretty woman. I was on the eve of a dangerous life, 
and I was simply extracting the animal pleasures whilst I lived. Today it was a case of Zoe, the personality I loved, I still longed to kiss her, but I wanted to have the unquestioned right to kiss her, as much as I wanted the kisses. I wanted to have her for my own, away from the contaminating ownership of the old colonel, and I determined to get her. I think she noticed the changed attitude on my part, and perhaps she felt herself that a subtle change in our relationship had taken place, and whilst I meditated on these things she fell into a doze at my side. I was sitting slightly above her, smoking to keep the midges away, and as I looked down on her childish figure a great tenderness for her filled my mind. She is very beautiful, and to me desirable above all women. I can see her as she lay there trustfully at my feet. I will describe her, and then, when I get her photograph, I will read this when I am far away on a trip. She is of average height, for I am just over six feet, and she reaches to just above my shoulder. Her hair is gloriously thick, and of a deep black color, and lies low on her forehead. Her complexion is of the purest whiteness, beyond compare, which but accentuates the red warmth of the lips which encircle her little mouth. Her figure is slight, and her ankles are my delight, but her crowning glories, which I have purposely left till last, are her eyes. I feel I could lose my soul. I have lost it, if I have one, in the violet depths of those eyes, which were veiled as she slept by the long black eyelashes which curled up delicately as they rested on her cheeks. I have re-read this description, and it is, oh, so unsatisfying. Would I had the pen of a Goethe or a Shakespeare, yet for want of more skill the description shall stand. Now I long for her to be mine, and yet, unfortunate that I am, I cannot for certain declare that she loves me. A thousand doubts arise. I torment myself with recollections of her behaviour at the dinner-party, when within two hours of our first meeting she gave me her lips. Yet did I not first roughly kiss her as we danced? I find consolation in the fact that, though she has said nothing, yet her conduct to-day was different. She was so quiet after tea as we wandered back through the forests, with the setting sun striking golden beams aslant the tree-trunks. Before we left I sang to her Tchaikovsky's beautiful song, To the Forest, and I think she was pleased, for I may say with justice that my voice is of high quality for an amateur, and the song goes well without an accompaniment, whilst the atmosphere and surroundings were ideal. There was only one jarring note in a perfect day. When we returned to the car, the chauffeur permitted himself a sardonic grin. Zoe unfortunately saw it, and blushed scarlet. I could have struck him on his impudent mouth, but for her sake I judged it advisable to notice nothing. I feel I could go on writing about her all night, but it is nearly two a.m. I must get some sleep. The guns rumble steadily in the southwest and the sky is lit by their flashes. May the fighting on the Somme be bloody these coming days. New entry. Probably about ten days later. Etienne. We leave to-night, having had a longer spell than usual. I am in a distracted state of mind. 
Since our glorious day in the forest I have seen her nearly every afternoon, though twice that swine Alton has kept me in the boat in connection with some replacements of the battery. I have found out that, like me, she is intensely musical. She plays beautifully on the piano, and we had long hours together playing Chopin and Beethoven. We also played some of Mussorgsky's duets, but I love her best when she plays Chopin, the composer preeminent of love and passion. She has masses of music, as the Colonel gives her what she likes. We also played a lot of Debussy. At first I demurred at playing a living French composer's works, but she pouted and looked so adorable that all my scruples vanished in an instant, so we closed all the doors, and she played it for hours very softly, while I forgot the war and all its horrors, and remembered only that I was with the well-beloved girl. The Colonel writes from Thiep Fal, where the British are pouring out their blood like water. He writes very interesting letters, and has had many narrow escapes, but unfortunately he seems to bear a charmed life. His letters are full of details and I wonder he gets them past the field censorship, but I suppose he censors his own. She laughs at them and calls them her colonel's dispatches. She says he is so accustomed to writing official reports that the poor old man can't write an ordinary letter. I told her that I thought the way he mentioned regiments and dispositions rather indiscreet, and she agrees, but she says he has asked her to keep them with a view to forming a collection of letters written from the front, whilst the incidents he describes are vivid in his mind. I suppose the old ass knows his own business, and one day the collection may be completed by a telegram, regretting to announce, etc., etc. The sooner the better. So the days passed pleasantly enough, and never by a gesture or word of mouth did she show that I was more to her than any other pleasant young man. I kissed her when I arrived. I kissed her when I left. Each day was the same. She would put her arms round my neck and look long and deeply into my eyes. Then she would gently kiss my lips. Not an atom of emotion, not a spark from the fires which I feel must be raging beneath that diabolically extraordinary, amazingly calm exterior. On ordinary subjects she would chatter vivaciously enough and she can talk in a fascinating manner on every subject I care to bring up, but as soon as I drew the conversation round to a personal line, she gradually became more silent, and a far away and distant look came into those wonderful eyes. I have found out nothing about her, beyond the fact that she has travelled all over Europe. I don't even know how old she is, but I should guess twenty-six. I tried to find out a few details by means of discreet remarks at the club and elsewhere. She simply arrived here about a year ago, as a singer, and met the Colonel. Beyond that all is mystery. Everything about her attracts me powerfully, and this mystery adds subtleties to her charms. This afternoon I went to say good-bye. I told her we were leaving shortly and she gently reproved me for disobeying the order which forbids discussion of movements, but I could see she was not greatly displeased. After tea she played to me music of the modern Russian school, Arensky, Sibelius, and Pilsuki. A storm was brewing, and we both felt sad. 
She played for an hour or so, and then came and sat by me on a low divan by the fire. We were silent for a long while in the gathering gloom, whilst a thousand thoughts chased each other swiftly through my brain, as I endeavoured to summon up courage to say what I had determined I must say before I left her, perhaps for ever. At last, when only her profile was visible against the glow of the logs, I spoke. I told her quietly, calmly, and almost dispassionately, that I had grown to love her, and that to me she was life itself. I told her that I had tried not to speak until I could endure no longer. She sat very still as I spoke, and when I had finished there was a long silence, and I gently stretched out my hand and stroked her lovely black hair. At last she rose, and with averted face walked across the room, and stood looking at the storm through the big bow windows. I watched her, but did not dare follow. At length she returned to me, and I saw what I had instinctively known the whole time, that she had been crying. I could not think why. She put her arms round my neck, kissed me on the forehead, and murmured, Poor Carl! I felt crushed. I dared not move, for fear of breaking the magic of the moment, yet I longed to know more. I felt overwhelmed by some colossal mystery that seemed to be enveloping me in its folds. Why did she pity me? Why did she weep? Why didn't she answer my avowal? Why didn't she tell me something? Such were some of the problems that perplexed me. It was thus when the clock chimed seven. I told her that my leave was up at seven o'clock, and that at seven-fifteen I had to be back on board the boat. She remembered this and in an instant the past quarter of an hour might never have existed. She was all agitation and nervousness lest I should be late on board, though at the moment I would have cheerfully missed the boat to hear her say she loved me. I tried to protest, but in vain. With feminine quickness she utilized the incident to avoid a situation she evidently found full of difficulty, and at seven-ten with a memory of a light kiss on my lips, and her godspeed in my ears, I was in a taxi driving to the docks in a blinding rainstorm, and we sailed to-night. For five, six, seven, perhaps ten days at the least, and at the most forever, I am doomed to be away from her and without news of her, and I don't even know whether she loves me. I think I can say she cares for me up to a certain point, but I want more. O oh, Zoe, of the violet eyes, and hair of blackest night, thy lips are brightest crimson, thy skin is dazzling white. O oh, lay your head upon my breast, and lift your lips to mine, then murmur in soft breathings, drink deep from what is thine. Then let the war rage onward, let kingdoms rise and fall, to each shall be the other, their life, their hope, their all. Footnote. I am indebted to Commander C. C. for the above rough translation of Carl's effusion. Signed, Etienne. End footnote. New Entry At Sea We are bound for the same old spot as last time. Alton must have been drinking like a fish lately. His breath smells like a distillery. He is apparently partial to schnapps, which he gets easily in Bruges. 
I can't help admiring the man, as he is a rigid teetotaler at sea, though he must find the strain well-nigh intolerable, judging from the condition he was in when he came on board last night. He was really totally unfit to take charge of the boat, and I virtually took her down the canal, though with sottish obstinacy he insisted on remaining on the bridge. This morning, though his complexion was a hideous yellow colour, he seems quite all right. I shall play a little trick on him at dinner to-night. I have begun to get to know some of the crew by now. They are a fine lot of youngsters, with a seasoning of half a dozen older men. The coxswain, Schmidt by name, is a splendid old petty officer who has been in the U-boat service since 1911. His favourite enjoyment is to spin yarns to the younger members of the crew, who know of his weakness and play up to it. He has a favourite expression which runs thus. His Majesty the Kaiser said Germany's future lies on the sea. I say Germany's future lies under the sea. He is inordinately fond of this statement, and the youngsters continually say, What made you take to U-boat work, Schmidt? And the invariable reply is as above. When he has been asked the question about half a dozen times in the course of a day, he is liable to become suspicious, and if his questioner is within range, Schmidt stares at him for a few seconds in an absent-minded way. Then an arm like that of a gorilla shoots out, and the quizzer, in original translation, Untersucher, receives a resounding box on the ears to the huge delight of his companions. The old man then permits his iron-lipped mouth to relax into a caustic smile, after which he is left in peace for some time. At the wheel he is an artist, for he seems to divine what the next order is going to be, or if he is steering her on a course he predicts the direction of the next wave, even as a skilful chess-player works out the moves ahead. New Entry I am rather weak and ought to go to bed, but before I lose the savour I must record the splendid fun I had with Alton at dinner. We were dining alone as the navigator was on the bridge, and the engineer was busy with a slight leak in the cooking-water service. I have said that, though a heavy drinker by nature, Alton is a strict abstainer at sea. Accordingly I produced a small flask of rum, halfway through dinner, and helped myself to a liberal tot, placing the liquor between us on the table. As the sight met his eyes and the aroma greeted his nostrils, a gleam of joy flashed across his face to be succeeded by a frown. With an amiable smile I proffered the flask to him, remarking at the same time, "'You don't drink at sea, do you?' In a thick voice he muttered, "'No. Yes. No, no, thank you.' With an air of having noticed nothing I resumed my meal, but out of the corner of my eye I watched his left hand on the table near the flask. It was most interesting all the veins stood out like ropes, and his knuckles almost burst through the skin. This went on for about thirty seconds, then he choked out something about needing a breath of fresh air. As he got up his face was brick-red, and I almost thought he'd have a fit. Whether by accident or design he pulled the cloth as he got out from between the settee and the table, and upset the flask. He was apparently incapable of apologizing, for he rushed up on deck. A few minutes later the navigating officer came down and asked me what was up. I said, What do you mean? He said, 
Well, the captain came up just now, swearing like a trooper, and told me to get to the devil out of it. It didn't seem advisable to question him, so I got out of it and came down. I expressed my opinion that the captain must be feeling seasick, and was ashamed to say so. I also suggested to the navigator that he should take the captain a little brandy in case he was not feeling well, but the navigator declared he was going to stay down in the warmth till he was sent for. Alton is a great coarse brute. Fancy allowing a material substance such as alcohol to grip one's mentality. Thank heaven I have nerves of iron. Nothing would affect me. And now to bed, though I must just read my account of our day in the forest. Darling girl, may I dream of thee. End of section.